Who wrote the Bible? God or humans? So, the Bible. The Holy Bible. Yes, the Holy Bible. The Word of God. You've seen it. Your pastor talks about it. You may have even read some of it. But where did it come from? Did God just decide one day to self-publish an autobiography? Conjured the whole thing out of thin air and sent it to Earth to bless all humanity? Heads up! Ooh, leatherette. Or was the Bible written by humans, who tried their best to guess at what God would want to say? Two chickens does not equal that of a hamster. Thus saith the Lord. No, 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 no. God wouldn't say that. What about a marmot? Christians believe that the Bible is inspired by God. But what does that mean? If you look at the meaning of the word inspired, first you have in, which means in. Really? Inspire, which means to breathe. So, inspired by God essentially means to be breathed into by God. That's weird. So, basically, what happened is, a long time ago, a bunch of people were chosen by God to be breathed into, or inspired, with God's message. In the Old Testament, these people were called prophets. The people who shared the good news of Jesus were called apostles. And these people went all over exclaiming God's message. And the things they were saying was some really amazing stuff. At some point, it crossed someone's mind that all of the stuff these inspired people were talking about should be written down. So they did. They started carefully writing all of this stuff down and refining and editing and transcribing all of it over several hundred years until they had a massive pile of this really amazing stuff. Oh. Now here's where it gets a little tricky. You see, there wasn't just one person writing this stuff down. And while most of it was truly inspired, some of it was, well, not so inspired. And the cantaloupe shall be cast aside lest you be consumed by your own armpits. This left the young church with a big problem. How would they sort out all of the inspired stuff from the not so inspired stuff? This is how the process of biblical canonization came into existence. What is canonization, you may ask? Canona what? Well, that's where they took a wall. Okay. And a lot of glue, and they put the glue on the wall, then they took all the writings and stuffed them into a cannon and shot the cannon at the wall. And everything that stuck to the wall went into the Bible. Really? No. Canonization was a process guided by God in which church councils were formed to decide what writings were truly inspired by God. These councils prayerfully researched and analyzed and sifted through the early Christian writings using specific tests and definitions to establish their credibility. So they would ask important questions like, is this writing actually being used by the Christian community? Another key question they'd ask is, was this written by an apostle? Or a close associate of an apostle? Or Aunt Gertrude's son-in-law's stepsister's cousin? <laughs> These kinds of tests and definitions helped to establish what books were a true witness to an active, moving God and the life of Jesus Christ and should be included in what we now know as the Bible. The Holy Bible. Written by humans, inspired by God. And that's... Uh... That's it right there, right? So you can have a great day. Head on home. Hope you got your fill-ins. Um, no, I, there's something special, um, whether it's leatherette or uh, 
another covered version of this book. There's, there's something incredibly special and powerful about the Word of God. And we're on our session two of four. So again, um, by saying session, we include there's two weeks for this. So this week we'll talk about uh, the Bible and its wholeness and completeness and ability to lead us. And then next week we're going to get a lot more practical with our use of the word. Um, And so that's just be in the truth. And as we kind of take our steps into understanding what the truth is and where God and, and how God provided it for us. Um, I just want to start with a word of prayer while we just consider the word of God uh, in its entirety. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that it is a good word that breathes life and not condemnation into our hearts. Father, I thank you that you are a gracious and giving God and that you recognize our need for community with you and that you gave us your word. So, Father, I pray that you would allow this time today to be an encouragement to our hearts and as well an inspiration to us as we seek to do your will and to follow your way in the pattern of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Bible is where we're at, and I just want to start with this because I think this is the best way to start right here. 2 Timothy three sixteen. Through 17 says this All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We live in a world that there are, is in many ways driven by the obsession with communication from cell phones, emails, blogs, websites, Pinterest. You know, every other different format of social networking. Uh, now it's moved from computers down to cell phones completely. I have students that rarely get on a computer. Uh, they are specifically guided by their iPads and iPhones and those kind of things. And when you talk to them about, it's funny because when you talk to them about Facebook, students look at you like, who does that anymore? Which is kind of like, dang it, how did I get so far behind the curve already, right? And, and there's, there seems to be this intrinsic thing about our nature that desires communication. And then we see in the word that we are made in the image of God. And from the very foundation of the world, we recognize that there was a triune God at work in us and through us and, and creating us. And when God created us, he said, let us make man In our image. And being made in the image of God, we reflect both uh, the ability of choice and freedom, but also some of the innate nature of God, which is from the very beginning community and communication. You have uh, references to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having conversation. Talking through creation, talking through uh, situations and, and moments in the Word where it's very clear that there is community among the Godhead and being made in the image of God, we also have that craving and we also have that desire. And it all is connected by this big doctrine of revelation, the fact that ours is a God who speaks. And so we start by answering a number of questions about this doctrine of revelation. And so if we want to understand the Bible, we need to understand how God reveals himself to us. First, what is revelation? Revelation is God's means by which he has chosen to reveal himself 
and to speak to us. That's a big point for us to take in. Revelation is the means by which God has chosen to reveal himself and to speak to us. We hear from God, a God who speaks to us. We speak to God in prayer. We speak to one another. We build relationships around communication. And so what is the first revelation? The first revelation would come in form of general revelation. And, and there's three forms that we'll talk about of general revelation today. And this is also in your notes, so keep on writing. The first would be creation. Creation. In Genesis 1, 1 uh, we read no less than 10 times that God, said, uh, that God said something, that there was an act of God, that there was a move of God, that there was a communication of God. And the God of the Bible is a God who speaks and continues to speak to us. Revelation is reliable and helpful. And it, it isn't us guessing if God is speaking. It's him telling us what he, who he is and, and what he desires and how to have relationship with him. And when we think of this general revelation, we think of uh, the first one being creation. And creation where creation, because it is made by God, reflects something of the goodness of God. And when we talk general revelation, it's not things that are necessarily, they don't uh, uh, mention the name of God. The name of God is not present, but the glory of God can be seen. Or the hand of God, the work of God can be seen. So when we look into creation, we see, and, and, and there are lots of scriptures. I'm not going to go through every scripture because there is not time to cover every scripture that I'd love to go with. But places in the word where God says, all creation cries out for God. General revelation through creation. Additionally, providence. God's ongoing rule and reign over that which he has made. There is a very strong understanding that God is in control. And there are people who don't even claim that they're followers of Christ or read the Bible who can recognize that there is a force much bigger than them, that there is a God of the universe who is hard at work in dominion over his creation, providing, and providence is part of that. And then conscience, that he has implemented, implemented into our very being a knowing that, that there's a distinction between right and wrong, good and evil, for most people, there are some broken folks in the world who don't understand that. But for most of us, there is a conscience that rides inside of us, given to us by our maker. And there are some who deny that conscience, and there are some who fight that conscience. But even in the, the secular, non-Christian world, they would say, appeal to your conscience. Would you just consider what is right? What would be the right thing? In general, it is not an acceptable mode of operation for people to steal and kill and destroy one another or one another's property. There is a conscience factor. And that's the general, uh, some of the general revelation of God. And then there is specific revelation. Specific revelation uh, is information about God that's clear to a smaller number of people. Um, while general revelation is available to all people to be seen in all avenues, special revelation goes to an individual or a group or a limited number of people. And those are, those are usually manifested in three different ways. Miraculous events. Think of the event of, of Joseph having a dream, right? That God says, Mary is pregnant. 
He had a, a miraculous encounter with God. There was a specific thing. He says, I am God. You are going to be my servant. And then you think even more into that story of, of Mary and her an, angelic uh, uh, visit that she experienced from the angel Gabriel, who said, you have been chosen. God is pleased with you. Let us, we're going to do this. And she receives that message, that special revelation. Miraculous events are the first one. Secondly, Jesus himself. Jesus came into time and space to a specific place, to a specific group of people with a very specific message. And while his life lived out was a very broad message, and while his death on the cross is a world-saving message, we need to understand that that specific revelation of Christ was, was very specified. And then finally, the Bible itself. It's, it's for a very specific purpose. And that's where we jump back to that section of Scripture that says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And just kind of considering where we are and understanding what the word is, we have to kind of take a look at some of the specific names we've given the Bible. The word scripture means writing. And so we're talking about written documents. The Bible means books. So the Bible itself is a collection of sacred writings. The Holy Bible is a book filled with these books, and, and they're all divinely inspired as well. Again, all scripture is breathed out by God in divinity. And you guys saw that on the video, what that means and how God literally would breathe inspiration into the writers. The books of the Bible, and this would be some of the facts that you may want to write down if you like it. In, I'm not going to number them. They're just, you know, random things that you can write out, <coughs> facts about the Bible. Um, there's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written over a course of roughly 1,500 years by 40 different authors. So let's get one more time. 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, written over 1,500 years by roughly 40 different authors. We know most of the authors of the books in the Bible, but there's a few that uh, are not known for certainty. Um, the books of the Bible are very well, uh, as well are written primarily in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and some of the writing in small bits are in a language called Aramaic, and they write from places like Africa, Europe, and Asia. So the Bible is not only a collection of lots of books, it's a collection of lots of books in lots of languages, and it's a collection in lots of books in lots of languages from global places. This is a very widespread thing. So it wasn't just like, you know, we dug up something in Utah and found it and, and all of a sudden it became the thing that we live by. And, and one big key thing to this is there is a uniformity of the gospel. There's a uniformity of the word of God. And as you pick up the Bible as well, you realize that there's chapters and there's actually 1,189 chapters in the Bible count them all individually. No, I didn't really. But I have computer programs that do that stuff, right? Um, and in the 1200s, um, some scholars got together and, and they, uh, they got together and they decided the Bible needed to have chapters. Because remember, it's just books. 
They're written books. The letters were just letters. It wasn't like, you know, you had chapter references and marks or anything like that. So in the 1200s, they added the chapters. And then in the 1500s, they went in and added the verses in there and broke them up into verses, numbered verses. And it's kind of like the idea of having, you know, your house address. You got a number on your house, and it's easy to find if people can punch it in their phone and locate it, right? And for now, it's easy for us to find Romans 1, 5, right? And, and that's the way it works. But it wasn't always like that. Uh, there are 3,173 verses in the Bible, 1,189 chapters. And the, the little headings that you see in your scripture, those weren't divine-inspired those were added after the fact as well. So when you get to the section, you're not, oh, thank you for putting the heading there, Paul. That was awesome. Uh, that was after the fact, all right? Um, the preliminary divisions of the Old and New Testament, New Testament, not New Testament. Um, I hear myself say things, and it's embarrassing. Um, <coughs> the, <laughs> yep, okay. Some people spend a lot of time reading the New Testament, but really don't want to spend much time in the Old Testament because it's old, right? It's kind of like, uh, would you rather wear your new coat or your old coat, right? And so we have in our heads that it's this Old Testament and New Testament, and so the old must be kind of passed away and the new is better. Well, that's not necessarily how it was ever referred to or supposed to be referred to. The first person to ever refer to those as the Old and New Testament was uh, one of the early church fathers. His name was Origen. And he was referring to Jeremiah 31 that talks about the Old and New Covenants. And then he applied that to the Bible, speaking of the Old and New Testaments. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does give people kind of a a different impression as to what they're really supposed to be. The Bible is meant to go together. The Old Testament makes up three-fourths of the Bible, 929 chapters, 23 1,214 verses written on something called papyrus. And, and that's uh, basically, you know, hammered out reads. You guys probably studied that in school or whatever. And uh, Never mind, there's a bad joke in there. Um, but w- along with it, there's uh, foreshadowing that comes. It's all about Jesus. Everything about the Old Testament is prophecies, expectations, anticipations leading up to Jesus. Everything from the books of the law and the original understanding of creation, everything was leading to Jesus in the Old Testament. The New Testament, then, is a quarter of the Bible, 260 chapters, 7,959 verses. It was written on parchments or prepared animal skins. So they upgraded, right? They were almost at computers by that time. Um, It was about the fulfillment of the Old Testament, The connection between the Old and New Testament is completely continual. And it's impossible to pick up the New Testament, a New Testament book, and just start reading without immediately hitting upon an idea, a concept, a phrase, a person from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament was a foreshadowing, and the New Testament is the fulfillment. This morning, early in the morning, I was doing a Bible study with um, some of my boys from our high school group, and we were going through Hebrews chapter 9, and the opening of that is explaining sacrifices from the very beginning, and how the high priest would enter in and present in the Holy of Holies, and and there's the ark, and a big explanation. They said, why did they go into so much detail to explain this when they were really talking about Jesus? I said, because in order to understand the new The better sacrifice, the greater sacrifice, you have to understand the original. 
In order to understand the fulfillment, you have to understand the foreshadowing. And so, what do the scriptures say about themselves? The scriptures say that the Bible is, one, effective. Deuteronomy uh, says, or, or Isaiah 55, 11, uh, God says, My word that I send forth will not return to me void. It will accomplish exactly what I intended for it to accomplish. God's word is effective. The next thing I'd put down for you is the scriptures are perfect. Psalm 19, 7 says uh, that every word of God is perfect and that God's word is perfect. We are not perfect. Our world is not perfect, but God is perfect. And that's made known to us through his word. It's also a guide for life. Psalm 119, 105, the whole chapter is one of the longest explanations of the perfection and helpfulness and truthfulness of the scripture. That it's a guide, that it can help us, that someone, it it literally paints it as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path in the middle of a dark night. It's our path to life. The Bible also claims to be true. John 17, 17, that's Jesus' high priestly prayer, his longest prayer in the Bible. He prays, Father, sanctify them. Speaking of you and I, sanctify them by your truth, your word, or the scriptures, our truth. And so the Bible is true. Additionally, the Bible is to be obeyed. James 1, 22 says, uh, Jesus says, uh, Brothers, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now these are all things that we know in our head, but they're hard to follow through with sometimes. Additionally, we put in here, Hebrews 4.12 says that the word is of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, penetrating to the joints and marrows and exposing the attitudes of the heart. Just that word picture there is one of the most beautiful word pictures in all of Scripture. Understanding the work of the Scripture as the dividing sword of God. That literally means that the Bible is the way in which God speaks to us. That there are many people who would love to hear from God. We'd love to communicate with God, have God communicate with us. And he says, I did speak, I do speak, and you need to see where I've put my word for you. Acts 17, 11, we see that the scriptures as well are uh, the standard for all doctrine and teaching in the church. And that anything that we believe or anything that we examine is to be ultimately be tested by scripture. That's what it looks like. That's what it comes down to. And so the question is, who wrote the Bible? You saw in the video, it's a partnership between God and man. They're working together, not saying that they were in like some sort of catatonic state, uh, but, but God was using uh, their personality, their education, their observation, their experience in order to empower, enable, and inspire. That's the word. To inspire them to perfectly write down an absolutely trustworthy and perfect record of Scripture. 
You see, Old Testament authors like David, Moses, Joshua, Solomon, Nehemiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Habakkuk, most of them that you've studied in this place. And if you just look them up in your concordance, you can see what books are attributed to them. They're named as the authors, and they would sit down and they would begin writing on scrolls, or they would speak their words of prophecy to different uh, 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 scribes that would sit down and, and, and copy down what they had written. Jeremiah 36 4 is a good illustration of this, where he calls his scribe in and says, Pen down these things that I tell you in Jeremiah. The Old Testament prophets were fully aware that they spoke on behalf of God. More than 200 times in the Old Testament, prophets said things like, thus saith the Lord. Other statements in the Old Testament, like the word of the Lord came to me, God spoke to me, God said to me. Those kind of statements are a staggering 3,800 times mentioned in Scripture in the Old Testament. They knew that they were speaking on behalf of God. And the New Testament, we see the New Testament sees itself as the fulfillment. At least 300 direct quotations are taken from the Old Testament throughout the New Testament. There's 4,000 different allusions in the New Testament of things that were spoken of in the Old Testament, whether it's people, places, languages, images, partial quotes, major concepts, those things. They said, now you've seen this, now this is how it plays out. That's how our Bible works together. Again, the New Testament is written by the inspiration, by the enabling of the Holy Spirit of God, just as the Old Testament was. And Jesus himself predicted that it would be that way. In John John 14, 6, he says, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things that I have said to you. So write them. Be careful with those things. John 16, 14, Jesus promised, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And while Jesus was alive on the earth, he promised that when he died, that the Holy Spirit would come and he would remind them of everything that they had heard, seen, experienced, and furthermore, the Spirit would enable them to fully record the writings of the New Testament. He gave them the promise of the power. And so the New Testament authors like Matthew He writes 28 chapters in the New Testament. Mark, 16 chapters. Luke, 42 chapters. John, 50 chapters. Paul, he has 93 or 106. We're not sure the author of Hebrews, but we kind of think it's him. Peter wrote eight chapters. James, Jesus' brother, wrote five. And Jude, Jesus' other brother, wrote one. Those authors make up what we know as verbal plenary inspiration. And I know you're going to remember that and want to use that one at lunch today over at Bravo Farms, right? So uh, the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration is most often referred to as inerrancy, as inerrancy. And I'm going to quick wind down because you guys got to get back and talk. But um, the, the idea of verbal means what we, uh, the very words of the Bible, not just the concepts, that those were inspired by God. Plenary, which means all of Scripture, all of Scripture, not just parts of the Bible, not just the parts we we don't, you know, that we like or we believe or we want to teach. Because here, what we do, we teach the Bible. We teach what we like and what we don't like, the parts that hurt, the parts that feel good, the places that are hard to look at as well as the places that are joyful for us. 
And as we go, we see all throughout history, people have tried to edit the Bible. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, went through, and he uh, was, was quoted as saying, and, and we have copies of this actually, he went down with a copy of the Bible and a pair of scissors and cut out all the parts that he didn't believe were right. The result was that he produced a Bible and it was called The Philosophy of Jesus Christ. Now that's a pretty brazen thing to do, but nonetheless, they would avoid, um, you know, and, and kind of steer you clear of painful pieces in the scripture, that's for sure. And when we look at this, we have to understand that the word works completely together. We see it in 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, 2 Peter, over and over. We keep seeing there is something about this word that must be complete, that must be put together and must be taken as a whole. You cannot just take it in parts. You cannot just take it in pieces. So there is a value, and we'll talk about it next week, to reading the entirety of the word so that you have a bigger understanding of the Almighty God. In the days of the Protestant Reformation, this led to a doctrine that we know of as sola scriptura. Sola scriptura meaning scripture is our highest authority. Scripture alone is the highest authority. And we believe that at TCC. That's part of our deal. We believe that the word is our highest authority. We're a Bible-believing, Bible-memorizing, Bible-studying, Bible-trusting, Bible-preaching, Bible-hearing church. The Scripture alone is the highest authority. And if you ever go to a church where it's not that case, don't give in the offering and leave as quickly as possible. Okay? You've got freedom to do that. Because the Bible is the strength of everything that we are. It is the truth. It is our highest authority. Some also uh, have referred to that as, as prima scriptura. But the point is that there's lesser courts that we appeal to. Let's say that the Bible is our supreme court. We have to understand that the, the scripture first or the scripture alone is very important. Now, along with sola scriptura, there is another philosophy called solo scriptura. It's just one letter off, but it, it's difficult. Um, so low scripture means scripture alone is our authority. And, and we don't prescribe to that. Because we do believe that the scripture is our highest authority, but that we also appeal to places where God works in general revelation as well. So for instance, when we have solo scriptura, we negate the ideas of science, medicine, sociology, psychology, history, some of those things. And that's not, that's not the way uh, we roll. We believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority, but we act within that system, those systems and those general revelations that are made known to us. We go to all kinds of disciplines to learn, but the result is we go to our highest authority. So for instance, if you go to medical school to be a doctor, that's great. Go to medical school, learn, study, learn how the body works. But as soon as you te they tell you we are not made in the image of God and we are not reflectors or bearers of the image of God and that God is not the ultimate salvation, that's where you check out and you say, I'm sorry, my ultimate authority, my Supreme Court has to overrule you on this one. The, the true word of God speaks to this. And so science and law and sociology, those are good things. Those are helpful things, but, but not our ultimate. 
And how do we know that the Bible is accurate? And this is where we're going to wind down to the very end here. We know that the Bible is accurate because we have uh, an understanding of what it takes to put together an accurate uh, understanding of truth. And what you'll see here, I put this up, um, these are all uh, authors and people throughout history, history and historians that we ascribe to. And you'll see that, uh, for instance, Plato, he is one of the great philosophers of, of, of any time. Um, he, the, the, the date written would be 427 to 347 BC. Earliest copy of anything is so much later, Right? So he existed then. The earliest copy was way after that, 1,200 years span, and there's only seven copies, and none of them can be put together to decide if they're accurate or not. It's pretty deep, right? And yet, philosophy is built on thoughts of Plato, Demosthenes, some of those other crazy names that are up there, right? And then you get down to Homer, that was a big one, the Iliad. I read that when I was in high school. It was pretty cool. 900 BC, earliest copy 500 years later, 643 copies, and they found that they're pretty accurate. And then you find the Bible. The space of time, date written, is very large. The earliest copies, very close. Less than 100 years. So what we say is that closer you are to the event, the more accurate the understandings that you find. The number of copies is in comparison astronomical. 5,600 known original manuscripts of different pieces of the Bible at a 99.5% accuracy. And when they went through and said, what are the things that are accurate and not accurate, they didn't find any significant finding that it would change the theological premise of the book or the word. They found that it was commas, T's, I's, dotted, T's cross, those kind of things. And or if he was referred to as uh, Jesus Christ, it may be flipped in another manuscript to say Christ Jesus. The accuracy of the word of God is phenomenal. And when we get down to it, we finally ask ourselves, and and this is where I want to close today, so what do we do? What's our response? I've thrown like tons of stats and information at you today and things just to understand like the enormity, the immensity of the truth of the word of God and why we stand on that as our ultimate Supreme Court authority in our lives. But the question at the end is then, So how do we live a biblical life? We don't worship the Bible here. The Bible was given to us, not for worship, but for community and communication, to be our truth. Scriptures are the means by which God tells us who he is and how much he loves us and he cares for us, so that we can repent of sin, so that we can think his thoughts after him, that we could live life with him both now and forever. That's how we live the biblical life life. A biblical life is one that receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. A biblical life is one that repents of sin regularly and easily, that rejoices in God's grace, and that responds as God speaks to us. That's a biblical life. 
It's not coming to the Bible just for information, but allowing yourself to be seen in the light of God for transformation. There are a lot of biblical scholars who know the word, who know the things that are in the book, but they know the information and they lack the transformation. And I'm not gonna be one who stands up and says that one, that one, that one, and points out or tries to judge on that level. But the question today is for us. Are we people of the word for the information or for the transformation? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Would you uh, bear fruit in this time of conversation? And would your word be dearer to us than ever before? We praise you and we thank you, almighty, most holy God, for your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Enjoy your small groups.